Darkness is not an affirmative force. It simply reoccupies the space vacated by the light. This is the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. It should be uncomfortable for a believer to live as a hypocrite. Delivering people out of the bondage of mainstream media. And the philosophies of this world. God has called you and me to be his ambassadors. Even in this dark moment. Let's not miss our moment. And now, the Hamilton Corner. Good evening. Good evening. Let's not miss our moment. Darkness is not an affirmative force. It merely reoccupies the space that is vacated by the light. In other words, if you are, as the Lord said, he called his followers the light of the world. In order for darkness to make its way on your watch, you have to make room for it. (laughs) Good evening, everybody. Abraham Hamilton III here, joined by my man, 100 Grand, Mr. Rob Gardner, who's on my right. We're still still doing our two-man team, two-on-two. Uh, while things are going on, but I'm telling you, the United States of America, they're not going to take this uh, this shelter in place much longer. Not going to take it. Well, I want to encourage you, as most of you right now are having a kind of integration of your part-time jobs with your full-time jobs. Uh, my heart aches for those who, um, who've had their part-time jobs, their part-time employment uh, prospects wither. Uh, the most recent statistics are that there are 22 million Americans who have filed for unemployment benefits. And the newest numbers, twi- that's right, Rob, 22 million. And the latest numbers are going to be made available tomorrow, Thursday. And it's anticipated that an additional 4.5 million Americans will file for unemployment benefits. Now, that is not the total number who are unemployed. That is the number of those who are filing for unemployment benefits. The number of the unemployed could very well be even higher than that. And that is why, my friends, there are many in the United States of America that are saying, listen, we have got to use our brain. We can, we are the United States of America. Dagnabbit. We can deal with public health concerns as well as get people back to work. We can do both. We, it's not, it doesn't have to be an either or proposition. I didn't plan on starting off with all of that, but that's just, just where my, my heart uh, is um, thinking about the scores of people who really do need help. And I just want you to know that you are on my heart and praying for you and doing what we can uh, materially uh, to stem the tide of some of the pain that's happening that's not directly caused by the virus. My daughter says, my daughter said, Dad, is the virus still outside? That's what my daughter asked me. <laughs> Uh, but caused by the response to, and I'm going to keep saying it, the response to China's hostile actions. You cannot tell me that the the actions taken by China to conceal the Wuhan flu, as well as, get this, they, (laughs) even when they were shutting down Wuhan from travel domestically to and from Wuhan, China, They still allow people to fly from Wuhan to Italy to the east coast of the United States of America to other places around the world. How could that be interpreted as anything other than hostile action? Anyway, let me stay on track here. I'm on one today. You can probably feel it already. 
let's begin by going to the word of God. But as you are attending to your full-time job, which is discharging faithfulness to our Lord with the primary, within the primary context that he's blessed us with, serving first and foremost the Jerusalem that he's placed us in. We never want to be among those who neglect or ignore or even worse, sacrifice Jerusalem in an effort to win the world. No. We want to serve Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, but we do not want to do so at the expense of Jerusalem. We should never sacrifice our families on the altars of external faithfulness. And many of us are, are being able right now to have a bit more attentiveness to serving our families. And I've heard a lot of testimonies from people who are saying, man, I'm having the opportunity uh, to lead my family in, 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 in family worship, to start our days off in the morning. I'm having the opportunity to teach my own children. I had one brother said, man, look, I kind of like teaching my own children. I didn't think I could do this before, but now I know I can do it. And you know what I said to him? Flesh and blood, blood has not revealed this to you, my brother. <laughs> to the word of God we go. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 1 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. And folks, I, I say this with repetition, but don't allow the repetition to nullify the import of what I'm saying. Serving your families well is some of the most important ministry you will ever do. Some of the most important ministry you will ever do. In many ways, we have celebritized and Hollywoodized, if that's a word, uh, the understanding of the church. But the church is not a building, it's people. A church is also not a system of programs that have been vetted by unsaved marketing directors. The same way they market concerts. The church is the body of Christ. The church is comprised of people. Let us reorient ourselves to the word of God to develop a value system based on God's word, not based on this wicked culture that we're living in, man. The quantity of your audience does not determine the quality of your ministry. Some God calls to massive audiences. Some he calls to an audience of three or four. We must never forget that Philip, Deacon Philip, left the crowd heading south on a road toward Gaza to meet one man, the Ethiopian eunuch. Was his ministry any less valuable to God than all the other disciples and evangelists? And for the apostles, not even close. Oh, Lord, I'm on one today. First Peter chapter five, verses one through nine. Here we go. So I exhort the elders among you. This is verse one. As a fellow elder, this is Peter writing and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain. Did you hear that? Not for shameful gain. Or as the King James says, filthy lucre. We don't shepherd the flock of God for filthy lucre. We'll just say it plainly. You don't shepherd the Lord's flock for money. That's in the scripture. You got a problem with that? Deal with the word. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, 
You see that? Likewise. So that's a transitional phrase. It simply means with the same manner of attention and, and diligence and put, uh, uh, attention to detail that the elders were to discharge their responsibility. Likewise, so you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And none of this is what I'm going to focus on explicitly, but let me just say this. Notice the word of God says, close yourselves with all humility. That's something God is expecting us to invite willingly. Because you have two options if you dare to be a Christ follower. You either humble yourself or you get humbled. You either learn humility or you get humbled. Moses learned humility. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. Choose wisely, my friends. And keep going. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Mm. Catch that. Clothe yourselves with humility toward God. Yeah, but that's not all. Toward the pastor. Eh, that's not all. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's what I call horizontal humility. Abe, hey, you mean to tell me I need to humble myself before my wife? Yes, indeed. Abe, hey, you mean to tell me I need to humble myself? Before my co-workers? Yes, indeed. Abe, you mean to tell me I need to humble myself before my employees? Yes, indeed. You get what I'm saying? Let me hurry up. See all these detours I keep going on? Y'all can blame it on Rob. <laughs> Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. I have to say this. See, if, you're not, if you don't pay attention to the continual flow of Scripture, you might miss the fact that the Lord is literally saying the quality of your humility displayed one to another is a demonstration of your humility before God. Because the reason why we are humbling ourselves before one another is because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. All right, verse 6 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. couple things I want to say. The word of God requires us, so let me say it this way. God, through his word, compels us as Christ followers to be sober-minded and vigilant continuously. Not episodes of sobriety, episodes of vigilance, but continuous, continuous, continuous vigilance because if you haven't noticed it yet the wicked one doesn't quit i said yesterday about the example we have from scripture when when the bible says even satan himself when dealing with jesus left him until a more opportune season in many instances and it's even with many of our families we're dealing with issues that are not new they just laid dormant for a little while, 
But it's the same old issue that has cropped up again. In conversations with, with some uh, young married couples I've had, I have conversations and say, guys, do you guys realize this is the exact same issue we've discussed before? This is not a new issue. This is, is the exact same issue. When you have weeds in your garden, you can't just pull the leaves off the weeds above the ground. You have to pull weeds out from the root. And Peter describes our adversary not as a lion. He's trying to persuade you that he is a lion. He walks around as a roaring lion. That doesn't mean he's a roaring lion. He's fronting. <laughs> he wants you to believe that he's a lion. But our requirement is to remain continuously vigilant. There are some things that are popping off today in our time that our ancestors in the faith, especially even including believers in our own country, they beat them back in their generation. It's the same old stuff. And the enemy just laid low for a few and then recognized, ah, now we seem like the, the, the body in America has got a little bit more soft. They're not as willing today to be peculiar people. Some of those who profess to be Christ followers are more concerned with being acceptable to unbelievers than they are, to, than they are concerned with obeying the word of God. So what will, what will we do? We'll dust off our old, same old fiery darts. And we'll launch them to a new group and see how they respond. But Peter says, resist the devil. Resist him. Firm in your faith. The Greek word there is antihistamine, where we get our English word antihistamine from. Exactly right. Antihistamine. Just as the antihistamine fortifies your physical body against uh, pollen and allergy seasons and things of that nature, the Lord is telling us to antihistamine the devil. This is not something we do on a seasonal basis. Our disposition is one of resistance to the wicked one. We must not allow, brothers and sisters, the same old, same old, same old, same old tired strategies that ancestors, our ancestors in the faith have defeated in their day that we don't allow them to overtake us in our time. Just because something is new to us doesn't make them new. The Lord has already told us that there's nothing new under the sun. So we should know then that, oh, these same old tired arguments, we can defeat them. Our brethren have defeated them in the past. And the last thing I'll say is as we resist the devil, Peter said, and remember that your brotherhood all throughout the world are doing the exact same thing. And now your two minute health and prayers update from the presidential prayer team, a ministry of the Pray First Radio Network. Governors across the country are looking forward to phase one and announcing plans for an economic resurgence. We're gonna have a resurgence to at a time when millions of American workers and families are struggling with the financial consequences of the virus, it's critical to continue the medical war while reopening the economy in a safe and responsible fashion. During this time, Americans must maintain strict vigilance and continue to practice careful hygiene, social distancing, and the other protective measures that we have outlined and that everybody's become very familiar with. We continue to be encouraged that many of the areas hardest hit by the virus appear to have turned the corner. Hello, this is Jim Bolthouse, president of the Pray First Radio Network. 
During these times of uncertainty, we're here for you. With current information about the COVID-19 virus, as well as important prayer points to guide you in prayer at a time when our world needs it the most. Psalm 27.5 reminds us of the protection given to us by God. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. We'd like to invite you right now to join us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings of health and safety. May the strength that you provide sustain us each day. Help our minds and our hearts stay strong and protected and help us to stay focused on doing your will by seeking your word. Always, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. To access free prayer resources that guide you in prayer and to see updates about the COVID-19 virus, go to pausetopray.org. Brian Fisher here with today's Life and Liberty Minute. Some people think the ideal Christian woman is mousy and meek, but the truth is quite different. Proverbs 31 says an excellent wife is a woman who has earned the complete trust of her husband. She does him good all her life and makes him a success. She is not afraid of hard work, rising while it is still night to provide food for her family, and her lamp does not go out at night. She has an excellent sense of judgment and may even start a successful business in real estate or in clothing. She is known for her generosity to the poor. She carries herself with dignity and strength, has a good sense of humor, and her speech is filled with wisdom and kindness. No wonder the Bible says that her children rise to their feet and call her blessed, and her husband does too. Truly a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Catch Brian Fisher on Focal Point, weekday afternoons at 105 Central on American Family Radio. Shining light into the darkness, this is the Hamilton Corner on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio. Some encouraging news. I can't call this foolishness du jour uh, because this is encouraging. We're going to take a, take a voyage into the realm of the legal sphere for a moment. Uh, there was a, well, let me say this. I'm expecting a pretty big Supreme Court opinion to be released uh, coming up here most potentially tomorrow morning. Um, the uh, Harris funeral home case from Michigan was argued in the most recent term in the Supreme Court at oral arguments. It is now the oldest case that has still yet to have an opinion released on it in the current U.S. Supreme Court term. So potentially as early as tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, uh, that could that opinion may be released from the Supreme Court very simply. What that case entails, the, the legal question before the court is whether uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that prohibits discrimination on the, ba- on the basis of sex, whether or not that includes the modern concept of gender identity. Now, if you ask me, it shouldn't be a long, well, if I was writing an opinion, this is what the opinion would say, no, moving on. I mean, come on. Nevertheless, it literally is the judicial equivalent of the Equality Act the Equality Act. You've heard me at length on this show discuss the details of the Equality Act, which would, um, if it ever were to be passed by Congress, would would completely eviscerate the civil rights statutes by adding uh, amorphous terms 
uh, like sexual orientation and gender identity to the, to the full panoply of civil rights protections. It would be for the first time in U.S. history, uh, legal protected status would be granted to a group of people based on uh, their actual or perceived gender identity and based on their sexual conduct. I mean, that is amazing. But that is what the Equality Act would do. Well, this, this case before the Supreme Court basically presents the Equality Act question to the court. <laughs> so it's not being done in Congress. It's the court has been asked to read into or to read into the Civil Rights Act of 1964 verbiage that was never included. So that may come out tomorrow. And because I've been watching things at the court uh, on Monday, I saw another case, and this is what I'm going to talk about for a little bit here. Another case that began in Louisiana, it's actually a criminal law case. The case is styled. Uh, that's, what the word, that's what the title of a Supreme Court is called technically. It's the case style. The case is styled at Ramos versus Louisiana. The Supreme Court issued its opinion on this case on Monday morning, and the issue that was presented there is whether or not state statutes can allow for non-unanimous jury verdicts in criminal cases. Can a person be convicted of a serious crime with a non-unanimous jury verdict? Prior to the release of this opinion, 48 states plus the federal judicial system all required unanimous verdicts in order to convict a charged party of a criminal, criminal offense. Only two states, Oregon and Louisiana, uh, allowed for defendants to be convicted, even of serious crimes, with a non-unanimous verdict. Well, there was a case, uh, and for many reasons I won't go into detail, but this case was actually close to my family personally. A young lady got stabbed in New Orleans, Louisiana, and stuffed into a trash can by Evangelisto Ramos. He was tried in criminal district court in New Orleans and convicted. But there were 10 jurors who voted to convict, and there were two who voted to acquit. In Louisiana, you can have a 10-2 jury verdict. And he was sentenced to serve life in prison without parole for the murder of Trinice Fettison. Well, Ramos appealed. He made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and ultimately the Supreme Court ruled that a conviction for a criminal offense with a verdict that is non-unanimous is a violation of the Sixth Amendment. Now, I'm presenting this to you not to even discuss the constitutionality of a non-unanimous jury verdict in a criminal case. The reason why I bring this case to your attention is because in it, a broadside attack that eviscerates the rationale that is allowed one of the most egregious Supreme Court decisions to remain on the books to date, that is Roe versus Wade, the rationale that has allowed that to happen since 1973 has been directly eviscerated. And I'll tell you how. In this Ramos versus Louisiana case, Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. In his case, he took on the argument as to whether or not stare decisis should allow the court to continue on with precedent that they know is wrong, or should they be able to overturn it? And there are a couple choice statements that Justice Gorsuch made 
that I want you to think about them, not only in terms of what Ramos's case had going on, but in terms of Roe versus Wade. Listen to this. Neil Gorsuch says this, quote, even if we accepted the premise that Apple DACA, that's a previous case, that Apple DACA established a precedent, no one on the court today is prepared to say it was rightly decided. And stare decisis isn't supposed to be the art of methodically ignoring what everyone knows to be true. It is something else entirely to perpetuate something we all know to be wrong only because we fear the consequences of being right, end quote. Now, what is Neil Gorsuch saying? Stare decisis is Latin for the phrase, Latin for the phrase, let it stand. What Neil Gorsuch is saying is that, look, everybody makes mistakes. But that doesn't mean we should pretend to ourselves that the court hasn't made mistakes. In this case, Neil Gorsuch pointed out a previous case that all of the justices have identified as being wrong to decide it. And he said, since we know that these decisions were this decision was wrong, why should we continue acting like we don't know it was wrong? Now, he said that in this Ramos opinion, but you know what I'm looking at? Roe versus Wade. Because even left-wing regressive jurists like Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. So if we know it was wrongly decided, then why are we going to pretend that it wasn't wrongly decided? You see, the Supreme Court is not legally bound to uphold the Supreme Court. When the justices take an oath, they take an oath to protect and to defend the Constitution of the United States, not the opinions issued by previous courts. In this opinion, Neil Gorsuch eviscerates the idea that stare, de stare decisis should be used to preserve precedent when they know it's wrong. Then it gets even better. Now you all will remember that when President Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court, I was, I don't think I was the only one, but I certainly was in the minority, even among a constitutionalist who felt like more pointed questions needed to be directed toward Brett Kavanaugh. While he was an appellate judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, he had issued some fuzzy opinions, in my view, especially on protecting unborn babies. In the past, Brett Kavanaugh has somewhat hidden behind stare decisis in order to not rock the boat as to whether or not he felt like Roe versus Wade needed to be overturned. Well, in this exact same case, <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh issued a concurring opinion where he not only said that erroneous case precedent needed to be overturned, he specifically addressed Roe versus Wade. As an example of a case that needed to be overturned. <laughs> In discussing his personal takedown on the issue of stare decisis, he wrote this, quote, In Casey, that's Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. In Casey, the court reaffirmed what it described as the central holding of Roe versus Wade, but the court expressly rejected Roe's trimester framework and the court expressly overruled two other important Abortion precedents. Well, I'm getting there, Lisa. Don't worry. Lisa says on Facebook, why can't we mention Dred Scott? Oh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there too. But I want to get there with some other components. 
In this, in his concurring opinion, Brett Kavanaugh bluntly stated that while stare decisis should be respected, it by no means should be considered inviolate. Brett Kavanaugh wrote, quote, and the doctrine, stare decisis, is at its weakest when we interpret the Constitution because a mistaken judicial interpretation of that law is often practically impossible to correct through other means. To balance these considerations, when it revisits a precedent, this court has traditionally considered the quality of this, the decision's reasoning, its consistency with related decisions, legal development since the decision, and reliance on the decision. Echoing the late Justice Antonin Scalia, Kavanaugh said the court should consider if a previous decision is, quote, not just wrong, but grievously or egregiously wrong, end quote. Now, folks, now I've said to you, Justice Clarence Thomas has gone on the record saying that he feels like Roe versus Wade needed to be overturned. Justice Alito has gone on record saying it. Justice Gorsuch has gone on record giving an indication of that. And now Brett Kavanaugh has directly mentioned Roe versus Wade as an example of precedent that may need to be revisited. <laughs> I know this is kind of in the weeds with legally gobbledygook for a little bit. But, folks, I'm telling you, I can feel the end of Roe versus Wade coming. I can feel it coming. And potentially, President Trump will have the opportunity to replace Justice Ginsburg to allow a potential sixth or fifth, depending on how you view John Roberts, vote to put drive the stake through Roe versus Wade. Now, we've already heard, I'm going to give you this example, just last year, Justice Clarence Thomas described Roe versus Wade as erroneous precedent that the court should not follow. He said it directly. Justice Thomas said this, quote, when faced with a demonstrably, with a demonstrably erroneous precedent, my rule is simple. We should not follow it. He went on to say that precedent only remains relevant when it's not demonstrably erroneous, end quote. Now, that should be common sense. What good is precedent if everybody knows it's wrong? And this is what we know. The Supreme Court overturns cases whenever they want to. Guess what the Obergefell decision was? A reversal of prior Supreme Court precedent. Justice Thomas said this, and this was like, man, this is like the money shot. He said this, quote, as I see it, we would eliminate a significant amount of uncertainty and provide the very stability sought if we replaced our malleable balancing tests with a clear principled rule grounded in the meaning of the text of the Constitution. The irony of our modern stare decisis doctrine lies in the fact that proponents of stare decisis tend to invoke it most fervently when the precedent at issue is least defensible. End quote. He basically is saying the only time that the Supreme Court talks about protecting precedent because of stare decisis is when it's a case that can't be defended with any other arguments. No other arguments would work. So you didn't say it was stare decisis. And by the way, if stare decisis was an inviolate principle that whatever precedent had been decided before, I would be a slave today. 
Because in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court said a man who had a melanin content like mine, who had black skin, brown skin like mine, had no legal right in the United States of America. In fact, one of the justices said that there are no rights of a black man that a white man is bound to respect. But guess what happened? That was overturned. If we didn't already know bad precedent should be overturned, we would not have overturned erroneous precedent like Plessy versus Ferguson. That ruled separate but equal was totally constitutional. So what I'm simply saying, what I'm simply saying is we have justices, four of them on the record. I'm looking at you, John Robert. With clearly Ruth Bader Ginsburg's time on the bench is coming to an end. We have justices going on the record saying that Roe versus Wade was erroneously decided. This is huge in terms of legal litigation and the legal sphere in our country where you have Justice Gorsuch coming straight out in an opinion, eviscerating the doctrine of stare decisis. In the same case, Justice Kavanaugh does it. We've already heard Alito and Thomas do it. We've had some rumblings from John Roberts saying it. Folks, that's five out of four. This is huge news. This is huge news. The only questions that remain, I won't say the only questions, but among the questions that remain is whether or not Kavanaugh, Alito, Gorsuch, Thomas will apply. Well, actually, it's not even a question with Thomas and Alito. I don't even think it's a question with Gorsuch. It may be a question with Kavanaugh, but I think he's writing in this way to send a signal to lawyers around the country and those of us who are watching this issue to say, listen, when I get the opportunity, <laughs> when I get the opportunity, Roe v. Wade is gone. Roe v. Wade is gone. That is big news. And that came out of the Supreme Court this week, Monday this week. On the other side of the break, we will open up the phone lines. One of the questions I will ask you is, what do you think about these justices going on the record, taking on the doctrine of stare decisis? They're saying that uh, there, is some, there is some credibility to the idea that we want to maintain stability with our legal framework. But when you have a case that's clearly wrongly decided, decided wrong on its, on its face, we have no responsibility to continue making wrong decisions based on the previous wrong decision. We have an obligation to correct that wrong decision. What do you think about it? So I'd like to hear your opinion. Some Christians, at least, will rise up and say, no, no, I'm not. And so right away, I realized that this is not a cake that I can create. I'm not baking your cake. I'm not making your floral arrangement. I'm not photographing your so-called same-sex wedding ceremony. No, I'm not doing that because the word of God teaches that what you're doing is an abomination to God and I am not going to participate. The Awakening with Bishop E.W. Jackson. Weekdays at noon central on American Family Radio. Governors across the country are looking to open their states in hopes of allowing those who have lost their jobs and livelihood a chance to get back to work. AFR would like to tell the stories of working class Americans 
who've had their businesses and lives impacted by the economic shutdown. We would also like to hear stories of those who've had their religious freedom limited due to the various orders across the country. Email us at mystory@afr.net. Is the coronavirus a catalyst to the end times? This is David Wheaton, host of The Christian Worldview. With the coronavirus pandemic that has led to strict shutdowns across the world, Christians are naturally wondering whether this could be a stepping stone to the events the Apostle John writes about in the Bible's final book of Revelation, which culminates in the return and reign of Jesus Christ. The short answer is, God is and will use the coronavirus, as he does with all things, to sovereignly direct his preordained purposes to occur. While the timing may be uncertain, Jesus says with certainty, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. In other words, he is coming back. Hear more at thechristianworldview.org and then join us this weekend for another topic that will sharpen your worldview. Listen to The Christian Worldview with David Wheaton, Saturday mornings at 8 Central on American Family Radio. Hello Americans, I'm Todd Starnes with news and commentary next. My name is Dr. Andrew Fabich and I teach microbiology here at Drew McConnell University. And so instead of trying to teach biology from this perspective that gives you this good you version of evolution, uh, you get this perspective of this is who God is, this is who God has revealed himself to be, and he's revealed himself in nature, which is terribly exciting to study. Hi, Todd Starnes here. Truett offers biblically-centered degree programs. Check out truett.edu slash Starnes. It is no longer permissible to tiptoe through the tulips in New Jersey. Governor Phil Murphy's office says such activity violates the state's emergency orders. That's very bad news for the folks who run Dalton Farms near Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Their annual tulip tours are a popular tourist destination. So in light of the pandemic, they improvised by putting together a drive through tour. But the local authorities got wind of the operation and fired off a nasty letter to the owner. He was told to shut down the tulip tour, and if just one car drove through the field, he would be arrested. You can drive through a liquor store, but you can't drive through a tulip farm. Governor Murphy is a Democrat, and he's running New Jersey like some sort of a dictatorship. Churches have been surveilled and targeted for closure. All that to say, don't be surprised if Governor Murphy calls out the German shepherds and tanks. I'm Todd Starnes. The Hamilton Quarter Podcast and One Minute Commentaries are available at AFR.net. Back to the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio. We will open the phone lines this segment. If you'd like to join the program, the number to do so is 888-589-8840. The number again is 888-589-8840. What we've been discussing thus far is... Uh, one, First Peter chapter 5, we read verses 1 through 9, but right at about verses 8 and 9, uh, the Lord through his word compels us to be sober-minded and vigilant continuously, continuously. Uh, we don't want to be among those who, uh, even after a victory, we rest on our laurels. We must be perpetually vigilant because the enemy has this way of... Uh, Trying, if he gets stopped, he lay low, lays low for a few, then comes back up hoping to catch 
an unsuspecting foe. So we must remain vigilant. And then uh, I, I waded into a kind of a legal discussion about uh, some indications we're getting from the Supreme Court based on an opinion that was released on Monday that shows that the justices on the court, more and more of them, are directly rebuking the notion of stare decisis. For example, last year, I talked about this before, when Justice Thomas did so in one of his concurring opinions, uh, he said this, and you can't get more direct than this, quote, in my view, if the court encounters a decision that is demonstrably erroneous, i.e. one that is not a permissible interpretation of the constitutional text, the court should correct the error, regardless of whether other factors support overruling the precedent. A demonstrably incorrect judicial decision is tantamount to making law. And adhering to it both disregards the supremacy of the Constitution and perpetuates a usurpation of the legislative power. That is what Justice Thomas said. Justice Thomas said, when we have erroneous presidential decisions, we are doing two things. One, we are making law. Why? Because the Constitution doesn't allow that. So now you're creating your own law. And then two, we are aiding in the usurpation of legislative power. Our job as judges, justices, are not to create laws. Our job is to interpret and apply the laws that exist. That's what Justice Thomas said. Boy, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Some folks are getting a little bit of scared. A little bit of scared. I want to share this before I go to the phone lines. And again, the number to call if you want to be a part of the program is 888-589-8840. The number again is 888-589-8840. I know there's been a lot of conversation about the Wuhan coronavirus, and today I didn't want to talk about the coronavirus a lot. That's why I didn't. Uh, but I do have this one story that is coronavirus related. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> um, did you know if all you watch is the, the mainstream Lying media, you probably wouldn't know, but did you know that the University of Southern California and the, and the Los Angeles County Department of Health conducted their own study in L.A. County concerning uh, antibodies? Mm -hmm. And according to their study, this is the University of Southern California and Los Angeles County, they found that 4.1% of the county's adult, adult population carries the COVID-19 antibody. That's about 28 to 55 times higher than the 7,994 confirmed cases reported in early April. Adjusted for the margin of error, the percentage of adults with the antibody ranges from 2.8% to 5.6%, which translates to between 221,000 and 442,000 adults. That has the antibody. Now. That many. L.A. County citizens with the antibody suggests what I've been saying on this program for some time now. That there have been a lot more people who have had the Wuhan coronavirus. And have been asymptomatic, didn't even know they had the coronavirus. And now their bodies have on their on its own created the antibody. That makes them immune to it. Dr. Barbara 
Ferrer, who is the director of, public, of the public health department in L.A. County, said this, quote, these results indicate that many persons may have been unknowingly infected with the virus. A similar study was released last week by Stanford University. Yeah, that Stanford University. That showed a similar phenomenon in Santa Clara County, finding that 2.8% to 4.2% of residents tested were carrying antibody resistance to the coronavirus. In short, what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that the USC LA County study, as well as this particular Stanford study, they indicate that the mortality rate from the coronavirus is actually between 0.1 and 0.2%. Folks, the mortality rate, the mortality rate for the flu is 0.1%, 0.1%. Now again, this isn't a nationwide study. These are just in these individual counties. But in these individual counties, these are the results of their studies. If, as I have suggested, that this virus has been in our country a lot longer than, than the official spokesmouths and intelligentsia realized, it could turn out in the end, it could, hear what I'm saying, it could turn out that ultimately our response has been quite a bit disproportionate to the actual risks that were presented on the ground. With that, I will go to the phone lines. We'll start in Virginia where Scott is on the line. Scott, how are you doing in Virginia, man? Crazy things are going in Virginia, going on in Virginia. Crazy things are going on in Virginia because we have, well, I gave our governor a new nickname. I call him KK. I call him Kluxatani. Ralph, and he's, he saw his he saw his shadow, and we have six more weeks of lockdown. Oh my gosh! So, um, <laughs> part, pardon, pardon my stuttering, um, but I think I I am cautiously excited about yeah. the Roe v. Wade leanings uh, of what you read about Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh. And on Thomas and, and Alito as well. However, I'm a lifelong conservative, so I'm yeah. used to being disappointed by yeah. people in government, whether they be judges, justices, or elected politicians. Mm -hmm. So until it actually happens, I'm not, I'll, I'll just be cautiously hopeful. Um, I wish that, uh, I still wish Amy Comey Barrett would have been up there instead of Brett Kavanaugh, but hopefully President Trump will do the right thing and nominate her when Justice Ginsburg um, retires or, or possibly Breyer, because he's 81, too. Yeah, he is. Um, so it, so that's really my main thing, is, is I'm cautiously yeah. hopeful, Yeah, but I'm, I'm I've right. been burned so many times in my life. Yep. Scott, I'm right there with you. Thank you for your call and your comments. I'm right there with you. So I have, um, and if you listen to the program, you've heard me say this, that if Republicans wanted to do something about abortion in America, they've had plenty of opportunities to do it. 
And I agree with your cautious optimism. In fact, you are prudent to employ that cautious optimism. Uh, and I'm in the same boat. The reason why I brought these things to, to light is because these are unprecedented things that have occurred specifically pertaining to Roe versus Wade. We have justices coming out in writing, putting it in writing that they that they view Roe versus Wade as erroneous precedent. We have not seen that yet. We have not seen that yet where you've had numerous justices come out and write even before they have a case before them on that issue in such a way where it indicates that they would overturn Roe versus Wade. But I agree with you until it happens. You know, you don't want to get too high up, you know, like my dad used to tell me, you don't, we don't count on chickens before they hatch. You know, you don't count your chickens before they hatch. And so I agree with you 100%. But the major reason why I'm presenting that is to show, one, that these justices are putting this thing in writing, and two, to encourage us to continue, as they started out saying, maintaining a sobriety and a, and a vigilance to continue to pray. Continue to pray. I'm sure you, like me and many others around that are listening to the program right now, have been praying for this scourge of slaughtering children to be removed from our nation. And these are indications that we're moving in that, in that direction. And again, if and when the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, it just makes the issue exclusively at that point a state issue unless Congress steps in and passes some type of legislation or, it would be amazing, amendment to the Constitution that recognizes unborn human beings, American citizens are entitled to the full rights and protections of the U.S. Constitution, just like the preamble indicates that when we seek to secure for ourselves and to our posterity the blessings of liberty, it should be obvious that you can't have posterity without children. Okay. Back to the phone lines we go. We'll go next to New Mexico where Jerry is on the line. Jerry, thank you for calling the Hamilton Corner. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for letting me come on the line. Dave, I have a question for you. If a car builder is liable... <laughs> I like your question already, Jerry. Car, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go ahead. For a faulty car problem that they created, somebody dies, mm. and the government has already ruled that they have to change that car mm. to fit so nobody will die, isn't it just logical that a mistake by a Supreme Court should be changed? Jerry? Or is that some... I'm sorry, Jerry. Yes, it's logical. If, and Jerry's point is, every other segment of society, when people make mistakes, make mistakes, they are responsible for the damage that their mistakes have caused. And they're required to remediate, remediate those mistakes. So why should the Supreme Court be any different? Jerry, your question is not only logical, it is not only appropriate, and those two things may be the very reasons why they have not happened yet. And it, <laughs> the, the blood covenant <laughs> with Baal-like, Molech-like slaughtering of children in this country is beyond the realm of logic. It's beyond the realm of logic. When you have, you know, 
governors coming out saying that a child could be born. That lets you know that it's for them, the age of the child, the size of the child, the pain capability of the child's ability to feel pain and all that, that doesn't make a difference to them. The thing that governs their views is their own, I would say, macroevolutionary, potentially atheistic worldview that devalues innocent life. That a small child, the life of a small child, is not as important. Let me say it this way. A life of a small, younger human being is not as important as an older, bigger human being. That gets beyond the realm of logic and goes into something else. Thank you for your call and your comments. We'll go next to West Virginia where Mike is on the line. Mike, thank you for calling the Hamilton Corner. Welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call, Abe. Um, I hope they do throw out stare decisis. I hope they do overturn Roe v. Wade. Having said that, you still may not be able to get rid of abortion uh, because of the argument that there are too many people using the resources of only one planet. I don't understand that one. Too many people using the resources of only one planet. I don't know how that relates to um, getting rid of abortion or not. But as I said earlier, if and when the Supreme Court overturns uh, Roe versus Wade, it would make it a state issue. And at that point, I think what you would see happen is certain states that have constitutionalist, dare I say, bi biblically worldview driven state legislatures and governors, they would probably abolish baby murder. Other states probably wouldn't. So that, then the laboratory of experimentation would allow the citizens of our country make a decision. Do I want to live in a state that allows the slaughter of the innocents or do I want to move? The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.